And I want to begin by reading from the book of Colossians. We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 12, if you want to be turning your Bibles there. I'll just read this other verse to you. 1 Samuel chapter 12. But Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, in verse 1, If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Set your minds on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Be heavenly minded, not earthly minded. Let that be what motivates you, what you think about, what you look forward to. Set your mind on heavenly things. Now you're going to see a contrast tonight. As you go through chapter 12 and 13, chapter 12 is all Samuel. Chapter 13 is all Saul. And the contrast between the two is interesting, it's dynamic, and it's obvious. Especially as to how the two men approach the Lord in prayer. What prayer means when it comes out of the mouth of Samuel versus what prayer means when it comes out of the mouth of Saul. Unfortunately, though, Saul began off, started off well, began well, as we saw on Sunday and, and last week we've talked about it a little bit. Unfortunately, Saul doesn't end up well. We begin to see how it comes apart, a little bit of unraveling tonight. We left off last week in Gilgal. Saul had just led his first successful battle against the Philistines and all Israel gathered together where in answer to the people's choice, Saul becomes king. They make him king there. Verse 15 of chapter 11 tells us, They offered sacrifices and peace offerings before the Lord and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly and it's a great day. Saul starts off well. There's a certain humility about him. There's almost a reluctance to rule. Remember that from last week, that in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 16 and 22, Saul is there, and Saul is hiding. He hides from his uncle the truth about what's going to happen to him. His uncle asks, why did you talk to Samuel? And he doesn't tell him that Samuel just anointed him to be king, or invited him to, to rule. He keeps that to himself. And then later, when all the people are gathered together, Samuel calls out the tribe of Benjamin and then calls out the family line of Saul and then calls Saul's name. They can't find him. Where's Saul? He's hiding in the luggage rack. He's behind the bags. They have to go looking for him. There's a reluctance there to rule and it it seems to indicate humility on on the part of Saul. Reluctance to rule. There's also a recognition on Saul's part of the ruler. In the way that he turns to the Lord, 1 Samuel 11, verse 13, where he says, The Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. We see this coming out of Saul's mouth and we think, Oh, good. He's not taking the credit for himself. That will change very quickly. He will begin to credit himself for the deliverance in Israel. That's why some people have said that it was an act early on. There are some commentators who believe when they look at the life of Saul, they say early on when he seems reluctant to rule, when he seems like he's recognizing God as ruler, that it's an act. He's playing a part. Saul is a player who isn't truly what he seems. His integrity is at issue, and there are those who believe that. 
I don't think so. I, I think he did start off well. I think a lot of people do. A lot of people are given an opportunity to do great things and then crash and burn. And we could go down a list of names, people in the headlines and are, whose lives are highlighted and you watch them burn out real fast. I think Saul fits more into that category because the problem is Saul begins surprised that he's called to be king but once he becomes king he doesn't keep his mind set on things above. Instead he sets his mind on earthly things. On the things of material worth and value. And as we pick up the story tonight we're going to consider this, this obvious contrast between Samuel who is a very heavenly minded prophet and Saul who is a very earthly minded choice of the people. Verse 1 of chapter 12 reads that Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have listened to your voice and all that you said to me, and I have appointed a king over you. Now here is the king walking before you. But I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my youth even to this day. And I really like that statement Samuel makes there. I've walked before you from my youth to this day, since my childhood. You all know I've been here, he says. If you came up to the tabernacle year after year to make sacrifices, you saw me here. Because as a small boy, I was raised in the tabernacle. I have been here before you from childhood on. Samuel was a church kid. Raised in the church, went to the church, always there at the tabernacle, worshiping God, doing the right things at the right time. And some might look at a life like that and say, how can this guy possibly know what life is like in the real world? How can he possibly relate if he doesn't have some massive sin failure in his life from which he was saved? How can he possibly understand the rest of us? And I began thinking about this this week and realized, you know, when it comes to the Lord, rebellion is not required. Now a lot of us have come from rough places in our background. And praise God, you have been saved and graced. Salvation has been given you. But I have never met a single person in my life who was saved later in life who didn't wish that they had walked with the Lord their entire life. It is a blessing to be in that place. If you happen to be a person raised in the church, you've gone to church all your life, and when it comes to your sin, you know there's sin in your life, and you've, you've sinned, but you've, you've never committed any of the big ones, you know, the real horrendous ones. You get up to give your testimony, and you go, well, I was born on a Saturday and in church on Sunday, and we were never late. And all my life, I kind of just went to church, and around age 10, I decided, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and so I gave my life to the Lord, and around age 15, I got baptized, and um, that's my testimony. And we almost downplay that kind of thing. We almost say, oh wow, well I've got a testimony that will knock your socks off. You see, see, I was, I was a prostitute for years and years. I was out on the streets. And, and, I was, and, and we, we get all excited about these, these testimonies that are so full of the wallowing in the past as opposed to just the walking with the Lord. And I submit to you that Samuel is a great example of someone who has just walked with the Lord his whole life. And it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Parents, I say this because a lot of times when we read the verse, Proverbs 22.6, we read it on Sunday, train up a child in the way in which he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. And we focus on the old. We say, oh man, I'm glad he said even when he's old, he won't depart from it because I have that caveat there. That I'm going to raise my children the best I can and if they really mess up and go off the deep end, well, at least I can have hope that even when they're old, they won't depart from it. That they'll come back around. I don't think that should be a young parent's emphasis. 
The emphasis should be on the train up. Train up the child in the way he should go. Not expecting the rebellion, not expecting the the big dive, but giving the child Jesus from early on. Expect your children to walk in the truth. Speak the truth to them in love and discipline. And tell your children, what we read again on Sunday, 3 John verse 4, I have no greater joy than this, than to hear of my children walking in the truth. Give them Jesus and expect them to walk in Jesus. It is possible. I like the model of Samuel. Since my childhood, since my youth, I've been walking this out before you. Is Samuel sinless? No. Of course not. But he's got a good walk. He's got a good track record. Verse 3, he goes on and says, Here I am. Bear witness against me before the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? I will restore it to you. Remember Samuel's sons are standing there and they had done all those things. I think Samuel, not only in bearing out the walk that he has had before the Lord, he is also making a statement that he's hoping his sons will hear. I haven't done all these things that my sons have done. And he says, and it says, the people said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And Samuel said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed, talking about Saul, is witness to this day that you have found nothing in my hand. And they said, he is witness. And then Samuel said to the people, it is the Lord, the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. It is the Lord. What is the Lord? It is the Lord. He is my reason. He is my walk. He's the reason I stand here before you in integrity, Samuel says. He's the reason you found nothing in my hand. The reason I haven't taken oxen or donkey from you. The reason I haven't defrauded you or taken a bribe. He is the reason. He is the Lord. He appointed Moses and Aaron. And so now, verse 7, Take your stand that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did for you and your fathers. Is he tooting his own horn? No. Samuel is laying a foundation saying, Let me first lay the foundation and then I'll tell you what I have to tell you. In other words, let me give you something to stand on so that you have a reason to listen to me. Let me explain to you where we're at and who I am so that now what I say afterwards is said in truth and honesty and integrity. You see, for Samuel, integrity legitimized his testimony. The fact that he had walked as long as he walked, it gave him the opportunity, the right, if you will, to speak to Israel as he is about to speak to them. He's earned the right to be in the position of deliverer, judge, authority, because he has walked it out before them in truth and honesty and integrity. Again, my witness, my best witness, my testimony for Jesus is not in my wallowing, it's in my walk. It's not in where I've been, it's in where I am. It's in what Jesus has done. The miracle is not that I was so sinful before, the miracle is that I am graced now. And as you talk to people about Jesus, let that be in your mind that it's not about telling them how awful I was, but how wonderful life is in Jesus now. It's amazing to me that he saved me at all. That's really all you need to know about my past. I am amazed by his grace. And from this day forward, let me tell you what he's doing in my life. Let me, let me tell you how he's changed me. How he's worked in me. 
how I am a different man than who I used to be. It's not the depths of my sin that testifies to Jesus. It's the heights of His grace. The new walk that He's produced and is still producing in me. I I think I've shared before, I love the story about the little nine-year-old girl in the, in the church where they, they were, when a person gave their life to the Lord, they always made them come up and give testimony before the whole congregation. This nine-year-old girl walks up, stands in front of the fellowship and says, For years I wandered deep in sin. <laughs> Obviously she had heard that many times. That's the testimony. The walk in the sin. No, not the wallowing. It's the walk now. It's who you are in Jesus now. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. Paul says, To this end also we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling, and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you, and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about wallowing in the muck to try and prove to someone you have a right to share Jesus. It's talking about what he's done, how he's changed you, the goodness that is in your life now. That qualifies you to talk about Jesus. And Samuel understands that. Samuel is qualified to talk to the people and to share the truth because he has walked in the truth. He says, check out my track record. His run has been a good one. And I love how he says that in verse 6, it is the Lord who appointed Moses. Not only is he pointing out that the Lord is the one who made the walk possible in my life, but he says, by the way, the Lord appointed Moses and Aaron. I like the word appointed in the Hebrew. It's asa, and it's literally made. The Lord made Moses, made Aaron. NPD has a show called Made. I don't know if you've heard about it. M-A-D-E. Where people can, can call up MTV and say, I want to be this. You know, a high school you know, klutz says, I want to be a great soccer player. And so MTV swoops in with their soccer coaches and everything, and they try within six weeks to make this person into something that they're not. It's really kind of a tragic show. I want to be made into something that I'm not. Well, the Lord is the only one truly capable of making us. Not just what we want to be, but making us what we were intended to be from the first place. Moses was made by the Lord, appointed by the Lord. Aaron was made by the hand of the Lord in his life. Samuel would say, he made me a prophet, he made you a people. And in verse 8 he goes on, he says, When Jacob went into Egypt, and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the army of Hathor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord, and said, We have sinned, because we've forsaken the Lord, and have served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. And then the Lord sent Jerubbaal, and Badan, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around, so that you live in security. Book of Judges in a nutshell, basically, is what he's saying here. And then verse 12, it says, When you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. Here's a new piece of information. We didn't know this last week. We know that Nahash, the serpent king of the Ammonites, remember Nahash means serpent, we know that he showed up. Sometime around the the time of of the anointing of Saul, this Nahash starts attacking, and then Saul goes out and leads the people and fights against him. Well, now we find out from Samuel that the reason the people were looking for a king was they were scared of Nahash. 
They were afraid. They didn't think the Lord worthy or capable of delivering them. And they said, give us a king, someone who will go before us and fight, because we're in trouble. It's amazing, because they're fresh off of victory over the Philistines. The Lord thundered, and the Philistines were routed and scattered. And then Nahash shows up, and the people's hearts fail almost immediately. And so they ask for a king. In verse 13, Samuel says, Now therefore, here's your king, whom you've chosen, whom you've asked for, and behold, the Lord has set a king over you. You want a king like the nations? You got one. There he is. I wonder what Saul was thinking in that moment. You know, I mean, this, this, isn't, this isn't a great rally cry for Saul, the great man who has been led to be your king. You want a king like the nations? You guys whined, you cried. Here's your king. There you go. Awkward. <laughs> you know, what is Saul thinking as he's standing there? But Samuel goes on and talks about how good the Lord is. Listen to this. He says, even after all this, the people rejecting God as king, he says, if, if you will fear the Lord and serve Him and listen to His voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. What? God hasn't given up on the people yet. He's still there. You got your human king, but guess what? The Lord is still here. Now he says, if you will not not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. This is grace. You have made a worldly choice, Israel, and so you're getting a worldly king, but the Lord is sticking with you. Fear Him. Trust Him. Serve Him. He is still here for you. And verse 15, though He says that you will be, the Lord, the hand of the Lord will be against you, He still is indicating a discipline out of love. God is not going anywhere, Israel. He is standing by. At this point, I wonder how many of us would have stuck with Israel. 400 years after they come into the promised land, Actually, 400 years after they leave out of Egypt. And for 400 years, it's been nothing but rebellion and whining and grumbling and complaining. 400 years. I can't handle four hours of my children whining and complaining. Half an hour, and I'm just going, enough already. I've had it. I am through with you. Go to your room. And then Cheryl goes off to her room. And, no, just kidding. <laughs> the fact is, God is an amazingly patient God. And in your life, if you ever get to a point where you think, I just, I, 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 there's no way God can save me now. I've just done too many things. God has got to be fed up with me. Well, He put up with Israel an awful lot longer than He's had to put up with you. Trust me, He's a patient God. And He is faithful. And He is loving. And He wants you to be in His grace. Hosea 13.10 I would be your king. Where is any other king that may save you in all your cities and your judges of whom you say, Give me a king. And this is the answer, by the way, to Samuel's being able to walk in integrity, to be able to walk a long time as a follower of Jesus, as a follower of the Lord. The key is grace. Even though you rebel, I will still be your king. I would still be your king. Fear me, serve me, listen to me again today. Because you didn't listen to me yesterday. Listen to me today. I will still be your king. 
God is so good. Verse 16, even now, take your stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. I love this. It says, is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call to the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And then you will know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. This is all Saul's inauguration. Samuel is making it about the Lord. Here's your king. Now let's talk about the real king. And that's where the focus is. And so it tells us verse 18, Samuel called to the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Now understand the wheat harvest in Israel is in the late spring. It is the dry season. It is not a typical time of heavy rain, of any rain at all. The rains have stopped. And so for Samuel to pray for thunder and rain at the wheat harvest was to pray for something supernatural. Was to call down a miracle. Which is exactly what happens. Why does he do it? Because in the inauguration of Saul, Samuel wants to remind the people that God reigns. Literally. No pun intended. As the sheets of rain come down and the thunder rings out, it completely freaks out the people, reminding them where the power is and who is the one who truly reigns. But listen, there's, there's a very cool biblical connection between prayer and thunder. In the book of Revelation, you might want to turn over there real quickly. Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1. Now if you haven't ventured into the book of Revelation, I invite you to do so um, at your leisure. Pick up the, the Revelation series and just go take your time and study through it. It is the most amazing book in the entire Bible. And it explains so much of scripture as you study through But having said that, verse 1 of chapter 8 says, When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer. And much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. Now this is interesting, because as you go through the book of Revelation, you start to recognize and discover that the things that are in the tabernacle on earth are represented, or maybe I better should say representative, of the real thing in heaven. That in heaven there's an altar of incense. That the one in the tabernacle is just a picture of it, it's a type. It's not the real thing. But there apparently is a real thing in heaven. And this angel comes to this altar, takes the prayers of all the saints, your prayers, my prayers, are being talked about here. The prayers of all those who believe are wrapped up and mixed together with incense. And it tells us in verse 4, the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. What happened? What was the result? Verse 5, then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth and there were followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. It's very cool. Prayer and thunder. Well, there's a connection. Prayers of the saints mixed with the incense. They go up before the Lord and the angel takes and scoops it out and throws it to the earth and boom! The thunderheads begin to roar and shake. Why are the prayers of the saints mixed with incense? 
Because incense in the Bible is a type of intercession. Incense indicates intercession. It's important to know because as the priest would go into the tabernacle he would offer the incense on the altar of incense and the incense would go up. It was picturesque of intercession. That was what the priest was doing while offering the incense. He would go in there, light the incense and while the smell went up he prayed. He prayed for the people. He prayed on behalf of the people. He was the intercessor going before the Lord. Fascinating. And in Revelation... That intercessory incense sparks thunder in the heavens. The response of God. No prayer, by the way, no prayer goes unanswered. No prayer goes unanswered. And we might at times wonder why we're not hearing an answer. Or why we're not hearing what we want to have answered. We're looking for a yes and God gives us a no. It's still an answer. We're looking for something and God does nothing. It's still an answer. But every prayer, at least at this point in Revelation, every prayer that has ever been offered that had not yet been answered, guess what? It's going to be. It's going to be answered. And the response in heaven to the prayers of the saints is thunder. God thunderously responds to His people. God thunderously responds to prayer and intercession. And as the high priest would go in and give intercession for the people at the altar of incense, so we have a high priest, don't we? We have a great intercessor in Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And Romans 8.26 tells us the Spirit also helps our weakness. We do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Jesus is your intercessor. But unlike with Israel, you no longer need a man as a go-between. And this is wonderful. And this is something misunderstood, I think, by many of us in the church. We don't have to go through another Christian. We don't have to go through a pastor for our prayers to be heard by the Lord. We don't have any other intercessor anymore but Jesus Christ. He is the intercessor. That I can cry out to the Lord through Jesus at any time. Because I happen to be in Jesus. And even when I don't know what to pray or what to say, the Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. I don't even know what to pray. But He intercedes as he searches our hearts and our minds. And you might say, well, well, Rick, I've heard Pastor Les talk about intercessory prayer. And I happen to know that we have people at this church who are intercessors. I know that there are people who gather on Thursday for the purpose of intercessory prayer. So how can you tell me we don't need intercessors and then tell me we have intercessors here at the bread at the bridge? Why do we need intercessors among us? Because the Lord has called His people to prayer. It's as simple as that. I'll tell you, there's something that's been stirring and I have yet to have a conversation that I need to have. But there is a sense among those who are our intercessors. 
that we are being called to prayer. Oh, Rick, I prayed before dinner tonight. It's not what we're talking about. Oh, Rick, we just prayed tonight during Bible study. No, I think it's more. That the bridge of the fellowship is being called to prayer. And those who would be in that role of intercessor right now, I'm guessing, I don't know this is a fact, but I am guessing they are praying for prayer. What a weird thing to be praying for. It's kind of like a wife going to her husband and saying, you know what? I wish we could communicate some more. And the husband turns to the wife and goes, isn't that what we're doing right now? (laughs) And the wife is saying, no, no, you don't understand. I'm talking about communication. Yes, I know. I'm hearing you. Aren't we communicating? And the husband's missing what the wife is saying. We need to be a people of prayer. Well, yeah, well, we pray all the time. No, no, no. We need to be. We are called to be. Again, I, I invite you to be praying about this. What does this mean, Lord? For us not to just have prayer going on at the bridge, but to be a people of prayer. A people crying out to the Lord. A people who are spending more and more and more time on their knees. Not assuming the intercessors on Thursday morning are going to do it for them because you don't need them to. You are being called. I am being called to prayer in this fellowship. How does that look? Do we program that? Do we plan it out? We're being called to prayer. That's all I can tell you right now. Samuel was a great, a great intercessor. And the people knew it. If you look at verse 19, it says, All the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, so that we may not die. This is as the you know, thunder is happening. The thunder is shaking. And they're looking at Samuel and going, He has that kind of relationship with God. And they're realizing the Lord is not happy about this whole Saul is king thing, though he's given them Saul the king. And they're on their faces and they're saying, Pray for us. Intercede. Samuel, pray. For we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. Pray for us, Samuel. The people know that Samuel is a man of prayer. They see it. They get it. Samuel was the product of prayer. Remember how his whole life started? His mother Hannah, 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2, cried out to the Lord. Cried out, give me a sign. For year after year after year, and we studied this just recently, she would go up to the tabernacle and pray and weep. And Eli at the tabernacle thought she was drunk. Do you remember the story? Because she was speaking, but she wasn't saying anything. Her mouth was moving, so he came over and said, Stop being drunk. And she said, I'm not being drunk. I am pouring my heart out before the Lord here. And so the Lord finally, after a long season of many prayers, gave her Samuel. Samuel, whose name means asked for. You could literally call Samuel answered prayer. That could be his name. Because Hannah asked, prayed for him, and the Lord said, okay, I will give you this son. But remember, Hannah was asking for a son for her husband. God was looking for a prophet for the nation. That's why he waited. Until she was in the place where she was able to say, Give me a son and I will give him to you. And God said, Now you're talking. Answered prayer. And along came Samuel. He was the product of prayer. And he was raised in the place of prayer. Product of prayer raised there in the tabernacle. The very place where the most intense prayer happened. You see, in the teaching process, in helping Israel to understand 
the nature of God, God determined that He would meet them above the mercy seat, above the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle at Shiloh. So they could understand more of who He was. Well, Samuel was raised right there in the place of prayer. Product of prayer, raised up in the place of prayer, and he proved the power of prayer. Back in chapter 7, the Philistines were routed again by thunder because Samuel prayed. Here in front of all the people at the inauguration of Saul, Samuel prays again. Thunder happens and they recognize this guy knows how to pray. They see it in Samuel. Now, you might say, as I have said, I can never pray like that. It would be so cool to be able to pray down thunder from heaven. Especially when I was in like fifth grade. That would have been great. You know? Someone picking on you on the playground and just go, just a minute. Lord, I just need a little thunder. And the kids go scattering. You know? I could never pray like Samuel prays. I could never pray like the prophets, like Elijah. Well, James addresses this in James chapter 5, verse 13. He says, Is anyone among you suffering? We would say, Yeah. Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And by the way, if you are sick or suffering and you haven't called the elders of the church, to come and pray over you and anoint you with oil, do it. Is the the oil like, is there something like magical with that? No, no. It's a picture of the anointing, God's intention to heal. And if you've been sick or you've been struggling with some kind of an ailment, can I just encourage you, that's that's primary job of our elders. It's not meeting. It's prayer in the ministry of the word Acts 6.4 that's what our elders do that's what they are supposed to be doing so if there's anyone sick among us call the elders of the church they are to pray over him anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord and verse 15 the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he's committed sins they will be forgiven him what's amazing to me James writes this and by the way I don't know if you know this but recent scholarship is beginning to point to the book of James as the first and oldest book we have in the New Testament James Jesus' brother is the author of the book of James Jesus' brother who didn't believe in Jesus until after the resurrection wrote the book of James not James the apostle Jesus' brother who said who do you think you are Messiah come on and now he writes this, and I love how he writes. He says, yeah, the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who's sick. Of course it will. What else would happen? It was just accepted as true. There was no questioning, oh, I don't know about healing in today's day and age. I'm not sure how that really works. Maybe the healing is talking. We start to justify and, and, we, and undermine things because, well, I prayed for someone to get well and they didn't get well. So it must be my own faith problem or this isn't... You know, we try and undermine the things of Scripture and James just said, hey, this is the deal. You pray for them in faith and they will be restored. The Lord will raise them up. Sins will be forgiven. Therefore, he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And then he says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And that's where I say, that's my problem. 
the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Well, I'm out right there. I'm not Samuel. I am not the kind of righteous man who can pray that kind of effective prayer. So I don't even try. I'm not like Elijah who prayed for rain and the rain came that prayed the rain would stop and the rain stopped. Interesting you should mention Elijah because James does. And in the very next verse, and please, if you don't have this underlined in your Bibles, you ought to. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Let me rephrase that in more common English. Elijah was a man just like us. Elijah the prophet? Yes. He was just a guy. He was no different than Job. No different than Spencer. He's just a guy. No different than Pat. He's just a guy like us. He had a nature just like ours. But it says that he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. James makes a wonderful point here to anyone who would say, I could never pray like a Samuel or like an Elijah. What is it that makes these guys able to pray the way they pray? Guys, they are just like us. Samuel was a man. He was not Messiah. He was not God in the flesh. He was just a man walking in the Spirit of God. Which I believe is the definition of a Christian today. Someone who is walking in the Spirit of God. Same Spirit that was on Samuel. Same spirit that allowed Elijah to accomplish what he accomplished. They were just like us. So how do we pray like they did? We pray in earnest. We, we pray without ceasing. We pray focused and dialed down and not assuming that a two-minute prayer before breakfast is going to take care of me for the whole day. Not allowing the things of life to get in the way we take the time it takes to pray. And by the way, Elijah, who was a man just like us, when he prayed that the, the sky would shut up and would stop raining, and then when he prayed again that it would rain, at the end of this time, he goes back to pray for rain. And 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 42 tells us that Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. Some of you have been there. Up on Mount Carmel, there's a wonderful statue up there. It's supposed to be Elijah. I don't know how they knew what he looked like. But it's there. You can see it. But Elijah went to the top of Mount Carmel and he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. How many times have you seen that (laughs) here at church? This is the birthing position. You may have heard the phrase birthing prayer. It came from Elijah. Elijah prayed earnestly. He got down literally in the position of a woman about to give birth. Now that's a graphic picture. He wasn't laid out with his face on the ground. He wasn't bowed down with his hands clasped before him. His head was between his knees as if he were on an airplane that was going down. In the birth position, he prayed earnestly. And by the way, when he did that, he did it seven times before the rains came. Crouched down, head between his knees, and he said to his little servant, Gehazi, go, go check it out. Let me know if it's, if it's raining. And he prays, and he prays, and he prays, and then he looks up, and Gehazi comes back and goes, no, there's nothing. The horizon is clear. Down he goes again, second time. And he sends his servant out, and the servant comes back and goes, seems like there's a little wisp of something out on the horizon. Elijah goes down again. 
And the servant comes back and goes, some clouds are forming. And he goes down again seven times and each time there's more and more and more as God is just stirring it up and the prayer causes the thunder and brings the rain. Because Elijah, who was a man just like us, prayed in earnest. He didn't stop. He didn't say, oh, time to pick up the kids. He just prayed earnestly. And I believe again this, the Lord is calling this fellowship to more focused and fervent prayer. As His Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Well, back to 1 Samuel chapter 12. Verse 20. The people have just cried out, Pray for your servants. They're scared in the thunder and they're frightened. Pray for us. Samuel said to the people in verse 20, Do not fear. You have committed all this evil, yet... Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Now, just earlier he said, fear the Lord. Down in verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve Him and listen to His voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the King who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. If you will fear the Lord. But now he says, do not fear. Well, that's got to be a different Hebrew word, right? Wrong. Same word. He says, fear the Lord. And then he says, don't fear. Well, Samuel, make up your mind. Which one is it? Why the contradiction here? Samuel is saying, don't be afraid, but fear. He's saying, and you can put it this way, don't dread, bow your head. Fear the Lord in worshipful awe, but don't be afraid of the life about you. Don't be afraid of this thunder that is shaking your life right now. Just pray. Don't dread. Bow your head. Verse 21. You must not turn aside, for then you will go after the futile things which cannot profit or deliver because they are futile. What is Samuel saying? He's saying don't set your mind on earthly things because they're futile. Making more money. Getting a nicer car. Building that house. Retiring early. Futile. It's all futile. It's the things of the earth. And Paul said, set your mind on things above. That's exactly where Samuel's heart is. Verse 22 says, The Lord will not abandon His people on account of His great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for Himself. And here it is, the reason for God's faithfulness, right there in verse 22, it's His name. And this is real good news, gang, because the reason for His faithfulness is not your name or my name, or even the name of Israel. It does not rely on us for God to remain faithful. It is His name. He remains faithful because of who He is. People to this day misunderstand God's faithfulness to Israel. It's not because Israel is inherently good. It's because God God is faithful to His own name. Ezekiel 36.22 Therefore, says the, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about, about to act, but for my holy name. And Psalm 23, verse 3 says, He restores my soul and guides me in the paths of righteousness because I am such a good guy. <laughs> he guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake because He is such a good God. Psalm 31, verse 3. You are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your namesake, lead me and guide me. And by the way, that's why we pray in Jesus' name. 
In Jesus' name at the end of a prayer is not just this little magical formula of conclusion. Okay, I've said everything I think I want to say. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray in the name because it is the name that is faithful. It is the sake of the name that we have. It is for the sake of the name we have our salvation, that we have grace. We sang the song wonderful. In the midst of a thousand claims of kings to their glorious reigns, I would give everything to hold your name. I want to hold your name. I want to have your name, Lord. I want to be called after you, which is exactly what you are if you happen to be a Christian. You are one who has chosen to be called by his name. And for his name's sake, you are saved. Hmm. To pray in the name of Jesus, gang, it is to pray in that relationship that you have with Jesus. St. Augustine one time said, True whole prayer is nothing but love. True whole prayer is entering into that love relationship you have with the Lord. It's more than the words that come out of your mouth or the thoughts that rattle around your brain. It is being in the place of Jesus as your refuge in love with Him. Expressing your heart to Him as you would to anyone that you are passionately in love with. Now watch this. Verse 23 says, Moreover, as for me, Samuel says, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. What? What are you saying, Samuel? If I were to cease praying for you, Israel, it would be for me a sin. So seriously he takes his role as intercessor. He says, but I will instruct you in the good and right way. I think that's interesting. He says, I'm going to pray for you and then I'll instruct you. And we so often get that backwards. I'll instruct you and I'm going to go pray for you and hope that you got what I instruct. No, I will pray for you. And then I will bring instruction. And in our lives, evangelically, if we're talking about Jesus, perhaps we're having a hard time telling someone about Jesus, instructing them because we haven't prayed first. Because we haven't taken that to the Lord. Samuel says, it's a sin for me. I would sin against the Lord if I ceased to pray for you. He says, only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. The praying prophet says, I will keep praying for you. It would be a sin to do otherwise. He's saying, and listen to this, it would be a sin for me to stop praying for this people who have rejected me as their judge. I would think once you're rejected by people, you could walk away. Sam says, no. No, it would be a sin for me to do so. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Prayer is that great expression of selfless love. It's like Paul, who exemplified this whole idea of of selflessness in prayer. He exemplified it in his heart toward Israel. Romans 9, verse 3, he said, I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Paul, this, this is a stunning statement for anybody to make, and it's actually in Scripture. And it's legitimized by the Holy Spirit who made sure it got into Scripture. Paul says, I would go to hell for them. If I thought it would save Israel, I would go straight to hell and have myself cut off. How many of you would go to hell for someone who hates you? 
How many of you would go to hell for someone who is against you? You see, that's what was happening. The Jewish people were, were Paul, the Apostle Paul's greatest enemy when he was doing his ministry. Do you realize that? They were the ones who were causing the most trouble for him. The Jews, his own people. They hated him. Bringing this new message of this Christianity thing. Changing the world, coming against us. They hated him for it. And he said, I would go to hell for them. If I thought it would save them. And so I wonder today, is there anybody that I would be willing to give up my salvation for to see them saved? Anyone I would be willing to go to hell for? And Jesus did that. In fact, if you want to study up on this in your personal time, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, talk about what happened in those three days, where Jesus went, what he did. And it's fascinating study, and I encourage you to do that. But the point is this, next to dying for someone, praying for them is the greatest act of selflessness there is, pouring out their name to the Father. So I wonder how we become a praying fellowship. Do we need more training? Do we need to schedule more opportunities on the calendar? How do we, how do we step into this, this call to be a prayerful fellowship? I'm struggling with this one because the work of prayer is not a program. And, and prayer is not a shortcut. Those who meet on Thursday oftentimes pray the entire day. Meeting 8, 9, 10 in the morning. Finishing up or unhooking at least at 3 or 4 in the afternoon. It's not a shortcut. It's not okay. We're going to learn certain little prayer phrases. We're going to pop them out there. We're going to become more prayerful. It's not that way. You can't mandate prayer from the church board. You can't have it forced on you, even by a well-intentioned pastor. It must be. Prayer must be the response of people to amazing grace. And the more we understand the grace of God, the more our hearts will be led to cry out to Him, to be in prayer before Him. We will be compelled to move in prayerful selfishness or selflessness the more we see what Jesus has done in our lives. It's what we see in the heart of Paul, whose people rejected him. It's what we see in the heart of Samuel, whose people rejected him. But in both cases, these men knew the grace of the Lord and were therefore motivated to be prayer warriors, intercessors for the people. Now, as we began tonight, I said you would, you would see a contrast. There's Samuel, the, the heavenly-minded one. And now we shift to Saul, who is very earthly-minded. I know it's a whole chapter. It'll go by fast, but stick with me here. Verse 1 tells us, Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Now that verse is a little, a little hard to translate in the original Hebrew because the number 30 and the number 40 are not there. If you were translating it literally, it would say Saul was years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years over Israel. Well, we know from Acts chapter 13, verse 21, that Saul reigned for 40 years. So, the Bible translators have kind of taken that and, and kind of slid it in there for here in the New American Standard translation. The King James, I think, probably gets closest to it. King James reads literally, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, the next verse comes into play. 
So now we're in his second year of his reign. Verse 2. And Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gabeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. And Jonathan, here's the introduction to Jonathan, Saul's son, he smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Now watch this. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear! All Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. (laughs) Philistines. I'm going to be doing that because we're going to the Philippines. So I may say Philippines and just keep right on going, and you know I'm talking about the Philistines, okay? Jonathan, um, all Israel heard that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines and also that, the, that Israel had become odious to the Philistines and the people were, ten, were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. What's happening here? Didn't Jonathan smite the garrison? And isn't that what we just read? Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines. So Saul goes around, blows a trumpet, and all Israel hears that Saul took out this garrison of the Philistines. He's tooting his own trumpet. He's blowing his own horn. He is taking credit now for the first time in his kingship, and it won't be the last. Saul is taking credit for something that was done by someone else. He's only two years into his reign, and he's beginning to puff himself up. He's beginning to say, Yeah, I know Jonathan did it, but it's under my authority, my kingship. Those thousand guys I have with Jonathan, those are my men. So truly, it's my victory. And Saul is tooting his own horn. Very different from Samuel who laid out the foundation of how he had grown up in the Lord. Saul is now tooting his horn. Literally. James 4.10 We sang the song Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Saul is going to become more proud and more puffed up as his kingship continues. Verse 5 Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance and they came up and camped in Michmash east of Bethaven. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait for the people were hard pressed then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. They got out of there. They were hightailing it away from this, from this threat. But as for Saul, verse 7, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. The people are in a tight spot. They are in the pits, as can happen to us. You might be between a rock and a hard place even tonight. Your life may be kind of in the pits. Well, this is where Israel was at. And if anybody ever needed an intercessor, Israel did now. They needed someone to pray for them. Watch what happens. Verse 8. Now he, Saul, waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. Remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 8. Samuel said to Saul, When you go to Gilgal, wait seven days and I will come down to you and offer sacrifices. Now that wasn't just a one-time event. I believe what's being indicated there is that Samuel is in essence saying, I may not be right where you can find me. I may be riding the circuit, that ministry circuit in Israel. But you go down to Gilgal and if there's a problem, you send word and allow me seven days, I will be there. 
I will be there by the end of the seventh day and I will offer up the sacrifices and I will intercede for you and, and on behalf of the people to the Lord. But you give me those seven days. And so that's what's going on. He waited seven days. According to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering. So now they're leaving him right and left. Saul gets into a panic. And verse 9, Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. He's impatient. You know, I sent that text message to Samuel yesterday and he still hasn't responded. I've got a message on his email and he hasn't responded to that. I can't get a hold of the guy. It's been three days. People are running four days. I'm not hearing anything from Samuel. Where is Seven days. Where is he? And in his panic, Saul forgot that he was called to be a king, not a priest. And in the law, it's stated very clearly. A king is not to be a priest. And a priest is not to be a king. A king could be a prophet, as David was. And a priest could be a prophet, or a prophet could be a priest. But a king and a priest, you don't mix religion and politics. Keep them apart, the Lord would say. There's only one who would be prophet and priest and king simultaneously, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one who could handle that. Verse 10 tells us that as soon as he finished, Saul sets himself up as priest, offers burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. Verse 11, but Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, because I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. It was really against my better judgment, Samuel, but I forced myself to do it. I felt it was important. And Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. That's the first time we hear that phrase in the scripture. A man after his own heart is talking about David. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Forced prayer. See, here's the difference between Saul and Samuel. Samuel prays and the sky thunders. Samuel prays, he intercedes for the people. When Saul prays, it's forced. It's prayer by rote. It's a forced offering. Forced worship is foolish worship. I believe I shared on Sunday. Last Wednesday night, worship was kind of forced for me. We were in the middle of it. I, I just, for whatever reason... Being in the flesh, it felt forced. I was trying to make something happen, nothing happened. And I realized later that night when I got home, it was just forced. It wasn't worship. I I didn't enjoy worshiping last Wednesday night. Not sure among all the voices of worship that were going on here, there were plenty. Not sure that my voice was one of them. It was forced. The Lord doesn't want our worship to be forced, our prayer to be forced. Which is why I said before, I don't know that, that we can mandate prayer at the bridge. I think we're being called to it. But it can't be a forced thing. The Lord said, 
In John 4.23, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Not people who are looking to rub a rabbit's foot, which is what Saul was doing. Can't go into battle until we have an offering. There's no one here to do the, the offering. I better just go ahead and do it. Even though he was not supposed to, he forced the issue. He forced the offering. And because of this, he will lose his kingdom. It will be stripped from him. Wasn't Samuel late in coming? I don't believe he was. The Bible tells us that just as soon as Saul had finished the offering, there on that seventh day, Samuel showed up. And it's interesting to me because that's what God does all the time. We pray on day one. He's not there. We pray on day two and he still hasn't arrived. And we pray on day three and four and five and he's just not coming and the people are scattering and I'm in the pits and, and I'm, I'm in the straight feet. I'm rocking a hard place. I don't know what to do. And I pray on day six and he still hasn't come. And I figure, he's not showing up. i got to do something here. And at the end of day seven, he shows up. I don't know if there's a connection here, but it's interesting to me that the tribulation will last seven years and Jesus shows up at the tail end of it. Not in the middle, not at the beginning, but at the very end of it, he comes riding in in all his glory. And oftentimes in our prayer lives, it is not the immediate response that we receive. It is a late response. It is a last minute response. And we say, why does God do that? What is the deal? Why does he wait for the last possible second to answer my prayer? And it's because the Christian walk is not a sprint, it's a marathon. It's not about getting you through from today to Sunday. Let's just see if we can make it to the weekend. We'll run real hard to get there. Christian life is a lifetime of walking every single day with the Lord. Of getting up in the morning and saying, Lord, I am yours today. I will walk with you today. And God sometimes waits Patiently, while we're waiting for Him, He's waiting on us to allow us that time to develop endurance. Because you have to have endurance if you're going to win a marathon. You don't need endurance for a sprint. You just need a lot of sugar. <laughs> you know, you just need something that will burn up real quick. High energy, zip, you're done, 100 yards, you're through. But it's not a 100 yard dash. It's a long haul that we are being called to. 1 Corinthians 9.24 Paul says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, he actually says, my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul is talking like Samuel. I will run the long race. I will live and do everything I have to do. Uh, interesting, I, I had a conversation with my son today. He's in a, movie called, uh, in a, a class called History Through Film which the title alone had me a little nervous. But it's a history credit at the high school, history through film, and the teacher sent home a list of all the movies they would be seeing, some of them rated R, and asked for parent permission for the kids to watch these movies. 
And there were a couple of them that I wrote next to him. I'd rather he not see this one and, and that one. Well, well, Corey came in today with another slip, and there are two movies that the guy wants to add, and one of those two movies is Pan's Labyrinth. Now, I don't know if you've heard about it. It's rated R. So I did what we do. I went on to pluggedinonline.com. Write that down. It's a great place to go to check out movie reviews, to find out everything that's, you know, I mean, they would list literally how many bad words and what the words are. They list the, the graphic violence. They list if there's any sexual things in it. And they tell you exactly what's there so you know what you're getting into. And so I went there and we looked up Pan's Labyrinth and it is d- described as a horribly graphic, violent, violent movie. And it went on to describe some of the, the things in the movie. And I'm reading this and I'm going, Corey, do you think you should watch this? History through film. What in the, it happens during the Spanish Civil War, so I guess that's going to be the application in the class. And I'm thinking, it's the little compromises that we make along the way. And Corey and I had a long conversation about it, and I don't know if this was the right move, gang. I'm praying about it, but I, I wrote a note to the teacher saying, here is my concern. And I signed the paper and I wrote in it, I'm going to let Corey make the decision on this one, and I handed him the piece of paper. He's 17 years old. He could go see a rated R movie and not even tell me about it. And so I said, son, I'm going to have to leave this up to you. You know how I stand. I said, I I wouldn't rent this movie and bring it into our house. You have to decide. And I said, whatever you decide, I want to know. And if you decide to see the movie, then I want to sit down and talk to you about it afterwards. I want want to hear your feedback. And we're going to, I mean, the Lord just put it on my mind. Make this a process. Don't just make this a one-time deal. But it's this whole issue of of running in a way, disciplining ourselves, walking with integrity, and and making even the little things. It doesn't seem like that big a deal. I could sign the paper and be done with it. I've got more important things to think about tonight, you know, teaching, than Pan's Labyrinth. Although not really. That was a very important moment for us. I don't want to be disqualified. I want to discipline myself because I want to run with endurance. And if I have been praying for something and God is not answering and not answering and not answering, He's not answering because He is creating in me endurance. James, again, Jesus' brother, James 1 verse 2 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, that when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Knowing that the length of Rick's teaching produces endurance. (laughs) He says, let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, our problems produce patience, which produce endurance, which makes us long-distance runners in this race. And that's what God's called us to be. People who can go the distance. You ever just tire of the walk? Ever just get a little worn out? It's ever exhausting as life can be. Remember that Christianity is a long haul proposition. And the Lord will give you the strength you need to go another day. So lean on Him. Samuel did show up. At the end of day seven, he showed up. Did Jesus, by the way, promise to show up? Did Jesus promise He was going to come? Did the Lord say that He would show up in your life? That He would respond to you? If you're answering that yes, then trust Him to do so. He'll be there.
at the exact right time. Hebrews 13.5, He Himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Don't be like Saul. Don't panic. If you're surrounded, if you're hard-pressed, if your life's in the pits, remember Jesus is coming and the kingdom is near. I can't even say the kingdom is near without grinning because it's so exciting. And it's true. Revelation 22.20 He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So Saul panics. He forces an offering, forces prayer, and he loses his kingdom. Verse 15 Then Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal to Gabeah of Benjamin. Samuel leaves. I, I have a sense that he was downtrodden, that he was saddened, heartbroken as he walks away. Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Oh, we lose the kingdom, whatever. And Saul gets back to work. Samuel warns him, talks about prayer. Saul gets right back to business. In verse 16, Now Saul and his son Jonathan and the people who were present with him were staying in Geba of Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. And the raiders came from the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Oprah, the other to the land of Winfrey, another, oh, sorry, to the land of Shul, and another company turned toward Beth Horon, and another company turned toward the border which overlooks the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. These raiders are occupiers. Interesting to me that the Palestinians of today claim that they are Philistines. Well, the Philistines of yesterday were occupiers in Israel's land. And today the whole thing's been turned around to where the Israelis are being called occupiers in Palestinian land. Interesting how that, how that works out. The lies that, that are propagated in the media. But this is going on. The, the Philistines, they're occupying the land. They're raiding the land. They're, they're taking it. And it tells us, and this is interesting. Watch this. Verse 19. Now no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, Otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines, each to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his hoe. The charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes and to fix the hose. What is going on here? The Philistines are oppressing Israel. They are occupying land that God gave to Israel. They are brutally lording it over Israel. And they made sure that there's not a living blacksmith among the Jewish people. So that the only way a Jewish person could plow his land would be to take his plowshare down to a Philistine blacksmith. Why do they do it? Because the Philistines say, we don't want them to have swords. We want to make sure they don't have any spears. Hmm. That's one of Satan's favorite tactics as our enemy, isn't it? Keep you from your sword. Don't let the people have their swords. And we can take them. We can take them. If they don't have their sword, you know what I'm talking about. The sword is the Word of God. And if you wonder why I keep bringing up the importance of God's word, it's for this reason. The enemy would lure you to leave it. The enemy would say to you, you know, I know Bible study is important, but but you need to close the word up for a while. You need to take a break. You need to leave the word behind. You don't really need it that much. In fact, right now, maybe God's calling you into a season of, of just journaling 
And, and He doesn't want you to get convoluted with the words. See, God would never do that. He says, I have magnified my word above my name. And yet the enemy would lure us. He would say, go ahead and get your tools. You know, get your tools sharpened with other men. Get, get your, your tools and your training from other men. Go to other books. There's some nice tools out there. There's some plowshares and, and there's some mattoxes and axes and hoes that you can get from, from others. Get your training there. Because they won't serve you in battle. Only the sword will serve you in battle. Let me ask you this question. How many of you feel like you've got a handle on your Bible? I don't feel that way at all. I was having a conversation with my brother just the afternoon and we were talking about some... He's teaching a Bible study tonight and I'm teaching tonight and we were talking about that and, and we are just saying, you know, it's, it's interesting. There's so many things I don't know. There's so much I want to know. And I told Ron, I said, you know what, I'm in 1 Samuel and people were asking me questions out of the New Testament and I'm like, you're going to have to wait till I get there. Hang on, whoa, we'll get there eventually. Don't ask me about things, you know, in the book of Jeremiah because we're not there yet. There's so much I don't know. I am here every Sunday and every Wednesday specifically not just to teach you all but to wield my sword, to learn. I get, I'm blessed because I get to study, to teach it. But we're all here for the same reason. I'm so glad you're here tonight because that's what you're doing. You're clinging to the sword. You're not going to the Philistines to get other tools sharpened. You're hanging on to the sword that you've been given. I, I found this on the, uh, the Berean Call. It's a website, Dave Hunt's website. And he writes this, and it really struck me as interesting. He said, The emergent church is fond of quoting St. Francis of Assisi regarding his take on how one communicates the gospel. St. Francis said, and you've probably heard this, preach the gospel at all times where necessary, use words. I've heard that. I think it's great. And then Hunt writes, this statement is a philosophy that sounds deeply spiritual to those who are spiritually shallow. I read that and I went, huh? And he said, it makes about as much sense as feed starving children where necessary use food. Wow. Preach the gospel at all times where necessary, use words. The reality, gang, is we can't preach the gospel if we don't know the gospel. We can't give people the truth if we don't have a handle on the truth. We cannot go into battle against the enemy with a hoe or a plowshare. But with the sword, the word of God. Satan would occupy our time. He would occupy our land. He would occupy our minds so that we would lose interest in the word which is our sword. Watch what happens. Verse 22. It came about on the day of battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. No one had a sword. But they were found with Saul and his son Jonathan and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So the entire army of Israel, nobody had a sword but the two leaders, Saul and Jonathan. And it is absolutely tragic, but this is a picture of far too many churches today. The pastor has his sword. Why do I need a sword? The pastor, he'll, he'll teach us. He'll tell us what we need. The priest has the sword. Why do I need one? And so entire churches end up with one or two leaders holding the sword, going into battle, and no one else has one. 
Just as Israel faced the Philistines that day, our enemy has two primary strategies to keep you away from your sword and to keep you out of prayer. And if he can accomplish those two things, he can run roughshod over your life and mine. Which is why the primary responsibility of the shepherd is the ministry of the word and prayer. Paul tells us very clearly, Ephesians 6, 13-18, read it on your own time, we have two weapons. We have a lot of defensive armor. Great armor. We have belts of truth and breastplates of righteousness and gospel boots. We have shields of faith and helmets of salvation, but we only have two weapons with which we can fight offensively, and that is the sword, the word of God, and prayer. That's our, those are our implements of war right there. And if we don't have those, we don't have the power to fight. We are being called to this game, the sword, the word of God. We said that from day one at the bridge. We're going to be about the teaching of the word. But prayer, gang, prayer. This fellowship is being called to patient prayer. And we will not experience victory without both prayer and the word. Which, by the way, both also develop a heavenly mindset.